this particular book um, is it's really helpful uh, because it's, it touches on so many issues which in the 21st century for many people make us feel as though the Bible is, is an outdated, irrelevant message uh, which we can ignore. Uh, hopefully as we work through these next few verses, we touch on one of those other issues um, we looked, we've been looking over the past few weeks, haven't we, at the problem uh, which we think the Bible exhibits in terms of slavery. Now we address that other issue, which is um, the role of women uh, and the, that kind of historical perspective which has been portrayed and very often has been worked out in, in a kind of an inappropriate uh, behavior and response. One of the great things and one of the challenging things about working through uh, books of the Bible is that it gives you no place to hide. <laughs> you know, when you, when you reach a particular text, you have no choice. We are going to have to work through this. That's good news, actually, um, because it means that we do address the problematic, challenging issues. At the same time, I think one of the things that we need to do is just remind ourselves a quick review of, of where we are so that we don't misplace this text and get ourselves from day one heading off into the wrong direction. So let's place ourselves again. Let's remind ourselves, firstly, that P Peter is speaking to a group of people who have recently come to faith in Jesus. Um, they are living uh, in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor as it was, and they have come to faith in Jesus. And essentially, this is about, in the light of that great gospel message, in the light of that good news, how do we live? What is the appropriate way of living? Um, and what we've seen in the back end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, uh, quick reminder, um, if, you, if you haven't been with us regularly, uh, you will maybe be hearing this for the first time. Um, we remind ourselves regularly of this. The Bible wasn't originally written in chapters and verses. Uh, that's a, an addition to help us navigate our way so that when we uh, turn to the Bible, we can all end up in the same place. But we need to remind ourselves that this letter that Peter wrote, uh, chapter 3, is not really a break in the original text. It's connected to the previous sections. It's connected to what has previously been said. And what we've been looking at in these previous two sections is the challenge of living for these Christians in the Roman Empire, first century Roman Empire, which was beginning to unleash um, a pattern of persecution which would go on for a, a few hundred years against Christians. How do we respond? The, and what we see is, if you like, layers coming down of relationship. Uh, where there is challenge and where there is problem. So what we saw in chapter 2 at the back end was this big society, uh, to coin the phrase, which might have already been grabbed and probably... No, I won't make a political comment. Uh, the big society, uh, the idea of what it means to live in the Roman Empire, 
when the big society is opposed to the gospel. So the first point is what it means as this group of believers where the society around is beginning to challenge and beginning to oppose. That's a relationship, isn't it? We're in that relationship today. We live in our society. Our society, um, as it's structured at this particular point in our history, uh, thank God, is a democracy. Uh, We uh, have enshrined into our mindset the freedom for us to be able to speak openly in the society in which we live. That is a great thing. It is a privilege. It's something that we need to remind ourselves is something to be valued uh, because there are many places where that is not enjoyed. We live in a place where uh, democratically we have freedom and liberty. That was not the case so much in the Roman Empire. Um, It was portrayed as such, but in reality, uh, during this particular period of time, um, there was a societal pressure to uh, honor the gods of the Roman uh, Empire. There was the cult of um, the Caesar, the idea that the, 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 the Roman leader, Caesar, had some, um, we won't go into all the complexities, but some relationship to the divinity so that there was a divine either um, blessing or representation in Caesar, which gave uh, Caesar divine status almost uh, as a leader of this empire. So there was an adherence, and there was also um, a pressure which was brought to bear. Uh, So each city had its own gods. There was a requirement, almost a society pressure, that we all go along with that. You can have your freedom for your own gods, but at least you go along with these gods so that we all survive and so that we all prosper. And so when Jesus enters into the thinking of these people and the message of Jesus where he said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me, there is a crisis Because what he is introducing into the minds uh, of these individuals is that there is now a a demand to worship only one God. Uh, And therefore, the idea of having this kind of plural idea of many gods that we all worship and then we have our favorite doesn't work. It's not uh, consistent with what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so Peter says, in that context... um, Be faithful to Jesus, but honor the society around. He doesn't say worship the society around. He says honor the society around. Um, That's interesting. We read in Proverbs chapter 24, which would have been well known by these uh, believers. We read this. Verse 21 says this. Fear the Lord and the King. Fear the Lord and the King. Uh, And now what Peter says is he says, fear God, honor the emperor. Do you see the way there's been a shift that has taken place in the way that he's encouraging these believers to now engage with the society in which they live? There is a respect due, but there isn't the same. There is now a distinction between God himself, 
and that kind of structure of authority. That is because previously the structure of authority under God's people's rule was uh, placed there by God. And so there was a consistency of relationship to God through the king previously. And now there is a difference. So there is an honor which is appropriate, but there is a fear of the Lord in terms of an awe and reverence and amazement towards God. Likewise, there is, as we've seen, there is this shift that takes place now in the attitude towards slave masters. We've already seen that what is encouraged is the same kind of self-sacrificing love. All of that previously in chapter 2 has, has had this umbrella idea of do this so that you might win some for the kingdom of heaven. So all of these differences of approach, all of these different attitudes, these reshaped ways of doing things, is, it has a mission purpose. It's a way of saying the reason that the fact that I believe in Jesus, the fact that I have uh, given my life to him, the fact that I now have freedom in him doesn't give me a freedom to, to, to kind of go and do my own thing. Rather, I love God, and because I love God, I, I'm going to love you as well. Uh, and that's the pattern that we see in chapter 2. Now we come to chapter 3 and we see this. Uh, wives, in the same way, in the same way. That is absolutely key, doesn't it? Isn't it? We come to chapter 3 and it says, in the same way. In other words, our thinking straight away should go to the idea that this uh, next section is specifically related to the previous two sections. The big society, the kind of local slave employment status, next relationship down, and now the closest of relationships, the family relationship. You see the way that structure is working out. It's going from the biggest down to the most intimate and the most local. It's, it's saying, therefore, in the same way. What does that... Our thinking straight away should go to the idea that this has some sort of key into that previous. Well, let's read on a bit because I think that we'll see that. In the same way, submit, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. What of the previous two break in relationship being. Big society. The big society doesn't honor the God who we love. And therefore it is appropriate for us to work in a way which is um, loving, to, loving on a horizontal level because we have first been loved on a vertical level by God. 
And exactly the same way we move to the kind of owned slave employment kind of status and we say exactly the same behavior, particularly when your owner is unfair and unreasonable. We read that in the previous section. When you're a slave and you are beaten for doing good and you keep on loving, what's the doing good that we've been seeing? We've been seeing that doing good is when we are living a life which is faithful to God and because of our faithfulness to God, we might face opposition. Now we get to the closest of relationships and exactly that same approach is in place. We see it now. He's writing specifically to a church, I guess just like this, group of people gathered together, and as they're gathered together, what we see is that there is a specific conversation in this letter going on to women who are in the church who are married to husbands who don't believe. And, and in the same way, the encouragement from Peter is to say, and when that is the case, you keep on loving. You keep on living in this particular way. Let's have a look then at this, the believing partner, the believing wife, context first, then the family of faith, and then we're going to look at how this is rooted. Verse 11 and 12 are fascinating. The first thing that is really interesting is this. It gives us a little insight into what it was like society-wise. There is clearly, isn't there, a freedom for these uh, women who are married to unbelieving husbands. They are coming along to the church. They're coming along to this gathering. There is a direct communication to them and saying, I'm going to engage with you. This might be your context. This might be your situation. But the fact that they are addressed in this way says this, that according to the social structure of that particular environment at that particular time, there is a freedom and liberty which is given to individuals, to, to, to married women. That's interesting. That has definitely moved on from what we see in the ancient world where we see a very much more a hierarchical ownership kind of context which we see in the Old Testament. What we see emerging now and what is reinforced when we, when we see other uh, external evidences, is that there is an, an emerging freedom for women in first century Roman society. And some of those women are choosing to come along to the church and by grace have come to faith. 
And that, I guess that straight away says, with that freedom, what is the, what is the focus? What, how, how is the right way, therefore, to behave? What is the appropriate response? The response is to live in a way which, without words, communicates the gospel. Do you see that? Now, that, by very definition, doesn't limit it only to the situation where there are only women, only the woman in the marriage relationship who has come to faith. That doesn't limit, does it? It's particularly addressed to women for this reason. If, with the freedom that was available at that time, a woman would, would have been free to come along to the church without her husband. But at that particular point in, in social history, if the husband came along, then the wife would have come along as well. You see the, see, see, see the difference that is going on. And, and so if the woman is there, then live in this way. If the husband is there, then it just stands to reason. You live in this way as well. We'll come to that in a few minutes. But the issue is that there is a commitment which is made, which is consistent, that when you are in a relationship which one is a believer in Jesus and the other isn't a believer in Jesus, there's a stick, stick in with it, stay in with it, Live a life which is, without words perhaps, displaying the gospel. A faithful, loving relationship. In other words, it's consistent again with the previous chapter. Do not use your freedom inappropriately. Look at what he says in... uh, Verse 3. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. It's interesting, isn't it? A particular kind of focus that we read and we think, oh, that's, what, what do we do? how do we respond to that? How, what do we do with that particular verse in the 21st century? Do we have a kind of, should we have a box as everybody enters where all jewelry gets dropped into? <laughs> Just kind of leave it at the door because it's kind of not the thing to do? Not at all. I want to read you something else. It's from a letter which was in wide circulation at the time. It's not not a Christian letter. It's a letter which was written. um, It's called the Letter to Clarita. It's um, a Hellenistic letter, a a letter which is written to encourage the correct way to live. Listen to this. The temperate, free-born woman. So that's somebody who's not a slave woman. That's somebody who is free. 
the temperate freeborn woman must live with her legal husband adorned with modesty, clad in a neat, simple white dress. She must avoid clothing that is either entirely purple or is streaked with purple and gold, for that kind of dress is worn by heteraea when they stalk the masses of men. Heteraea were prostitutes. You should have a blush on your cheeks as a sign of modesty instead of rouge and should wear nobility, decorum, and temperance instead of gold and emeralds. That is not the Bible. And yet look how, isn't it remarkable how comparable that is with what Peter is writing. What is actually being said, therefore? What Peter is saying is appropriate for men and women today. And it works like this. The appropriate way that you are to live, the appropriate way that you are to present yourselves in a way which is consistent with that which is noble in your society when the society in which you live has noble characteristics consistent with God's plan. I'll say that again and try and get it a little bit easier. He's saying this, you are to live in a way which upholds dignity and goodness and appropriateness and all of those good characteristics. In other words, you play your part, men and women, all of us, we all play our part in maintaining and supporting for the sake of the people who we love Dignity, respect. Look at how it goes on and speaks, however. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their faith in God used to adorn themselves. In other words, this pattern of adornment which is marked not by external appearance, but by inequality has always been, always been, and will always be what God looks at. And that goes for whether you are a a man or a woman. In our society, we we are in a totally different place. We, We would never write a letter like that in wider society today, would we? And yet at the same time, one of the things that our society probably has to hear more and more and doesn't hear enough is that you are to live and I am to live in a way which behaves in honor and respect of my partner, my wife or my husband, rather rather than in some sort of self-adorning look at me kind of way. That is what God looks at. He looks at the heart. He looks at the inner motives. It doesn't matter whether a man or we are a man or a woman when it comes to that. In our society, there is, there is, a, there is a shift which has taken place where there is now this almost a kind of constant 
battle one against the other, trying to uh, make one of us appear so much more um, beautiful, adorned, beauty on the outside, kind of, uh, okay, I'm going to say it. We look far more, don't we, at whether the pictures that we take on selfies look like celebrity rather than on the quality of the heart and the goodness of the person. That's what it's down to, isn't it? That's what Peter is saying. You know, you spend, there is a danger when any society starts to represent itself only on the outside rather than on the inner qualities. Now, the message of the gospel consistently, continually says where God looks is not on the outside, it's on the heart. And in one sense, society knows that. You know, we all want to see people who are, we all love and we all value, finally and ultimately, people who are good on the inside. People who are good at heart. People who have love and compassion and a sense of goodness and justice towards others around. They are the qualities that we love. They are the qualities that God loves. So let's not, in our society today, let's not us get lost with exactly the same problem that this church might have been facing at that time. Let's not us get lost by a false representation where if we look good on the outside, everything is fine. It isn't potentially. It's potentially self-serving. What Peter is saying is the way in which we are are to display ourselves is with inner qualities of grace. Is that consistent with the message of Jesus? At what moment do we most adore Jesus? At that moment, are we most convinced that Jesus loves us? At what moment do we see without any shadow of a doubt that He is the perfect, giving person at the point where he looks externally the most hideous. At the point where externally he looks disfigured, bloody, battered. What does that moment as Jesus is dying on the cross externally looking offensive What does it communicate to us? When we look at that, what do we see? Do we see a repulsive man? Somebody who we walk away from because that's disgraceful and disgusting and horrible? Or do we see somebody who is just radiating his inner compassion, his inner mercy, his inner goodness, You see, when we look at Jesus, we get it. When we look at that kind of perspective and we see, that's when we see that He loves us the most. 
when, when all of the external has fallen apart, but his internal love just radiates out, that's when we get it. And exactly the same for us towards each other. Because anything else is self-serving, isn't it? Of course, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that we, in, in our culture today, we're going to abandon jewellery and, and doing your hair and, uh, and wearing earrings and, and nice kind of clothes and all of that. It doesn't mean that. It means that if that's our focus, if that's how we present ourselves to each other, if that's our priority, we have lost the centrality of the character of the gospel, that giving of one to the other. Look at the way it's displayed. Verse, um, verse 6. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. I find that that little section is fascinating. Where did, where did Sarah call Abraham her Lord? At the point where she's laughing uh, around the corner when she hears mention of the fact that she's going to get pregnant at an old age. That's when Lord is mentioned. Isn't that fascinating? Uh, and then when she is confronted, she lies. Is that what it's talking about? Well, if we restrict it to that, we lose the plot. Actually, by this time, in the general uh, teaching of the rabbi, the rabbis down through the centuries, there is an increasing recognition of the, the, the love of the patriarch, matriarchal women in the Bible. The faithfulness, the goodness... It's a model which was valued and loved. We're in a different world, aren't we? Uh, we're in a world which now when we talk about the idea of submitting themselves to their own husbands is just one of the most offensive things that we could possibly say. I understand that. I understand that because that kind of attitude has been used historically in the most obscene and offensive ways by despicable, insecure men who have created this kind of opposing pressure on women which has resulted in the only possible response, which is to step out of that pressure and to gain dignity and respect separately. There are many reasons why I love the fact that that stepping out and that raising of in separated dignity and respect is, is a 
beautiful thing in lots of ways, on a society level. But it doesn't take us to where we need to get because the reality is we need each other. We need each other. We're designed, we are made to need each other. We are made to complement each other. And and that's what Peter is saying. That would be a beautiful thing when there is a commitment to each other. The believing wife and how to approach that. I think we could move that to our situation today and say, you know what, that, that applies to both of us now in our culture today. You might be a believing husband uh, and your wife doesn't believe. In our society today, what's the right approach? You love. You might not use words, but you show compassion. You show kindness. You show love. Now we move on to the next verse, which is, I I think in lots of ways, in the culture of the time, this was the shocking verse. This was the one that really rocked. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with, with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Wow. Essentially, let's kind of say it in simple terms. Husbands, love your wives in a way which recognizes that you are co-equal heirs to the gracious message of God. In a society which still had that kind of subjugating, male-dominating, pervasive attitude throughout it, for us men to hear that our response is to live in a way which sees ourselves as co-heirs it's like it's it's reminding ourselves that we are our objective is to take ourselves right the way back to that relationship first established for men and women before God that you are together before me you need each other you are heirs together of the kingdom you sit start side by side you are loved by me in equal measure God says And you guys, in Asia Minor, in the first century, this is the shock. That is your attitude. That is how you are to present yourselves. How serious is it that you take that on board? It's this serious. It's so serious that if you don't take this on board, it can hinder your prayers. It can hinder your relationship with God. It can hinder. How, how amazing is that? If you've not got this right in the first century Roman world, if you don't see that you are co-heirs with your wives, then you 
are forfeiting potentially your relationship, your prayer life with your Father in heaven. That's how serious it is. That was rocking. That was amazing for us, for that society back then. And for our society today, it's the most amazing piece of news. We're together before God. Let's not forget it. When that's the case, it's an amazing, it's a beautiful, it's a wonderful thing. And live like that. That all of these discussions that we've had up to now have relied on one thing absolute sacrifice by somebody. It costs, doesn't it? It costs. And if we look back, that is the very foundation that Peter places all of these reshaped relationships on. He says this, this to this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Just remember, Peter is saying, the foundation of sacrifice that Jesus made for you to be in relationship with him. And therefore, it is not, it's not a huge thing for you to do the same. For you to sacrifice in the same way. Because this is not all that it is. This is not all that there is. There is a hope. There is a future. I, we, are in, we are in a different world. I know that. There are many ways in which this could perhaps be used inappropriately even today. If anybody wants to chat to me at the end about these kind of things, I would love to kind of go a bit deeper. If you've got questions... Drop me a text. We can catch up. But essentially, the issue is this. The rationale for this changed life is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's rooted in the sacrifice of Jesus. The hope that we find is rooted in the hope that we find in Jesus. It's exciting for us to, to know that that is our hope. We engage with it by faith, don't we? That's how we know it. That's how we embrace it. That's how we can be secured in it, by faith. Just the same as the faith that Jesus had, who saw that he could trust the one who dealt justly.